you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Leviticus, chapter 27, as we finish the book of Leviticus together this evening. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 27, if you read ahead, uh, almost sort of seems to be somewhat kind of like an appendix to the book of Leviticus. It almost seems from just a observatory reading that it would seem that chapter 26 would be a good place to close out the book of Leviticus. Remember last week in chapter 26, God was giving to the children of Israel uh, in relation to his covenant with them uh, sort of the blessings and the curses that they would bring upon themselves in relationship uh, to their adherence and obedience to his commands and statutes and he told them after the entirety of all that was given to them there at Mount Sinai which we've been studying together in the book of Leviticus <clears throat> that if they were to keep his statutes and to walk in his commandments and perform them, then God said that he would allow his blessing as a reward to come upon them, that in essence they would bring God's blessing upon their lives by their obedience to his word. And God said in the same way, if you don't obey me and you don't observe my commandments and despise my statutes, then God told uh, the children of Israel that as a result of that and according to his covenant with them, that they would in a sense uh, bring upon their own lives uh, the curses that come with a life of disobedience and that they would incur uh, the painful difficulties that he described there uh, for a while afterwards but then he left off the chapter in a rather encouraging note by saying to them that even in the midst of their disobedience and failures and we know as we study the history of the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament uh, there were times and seasons, it seems, and cycles when they would wander away from the Lord, where they would stiffen their necks in disobedience, even as the children of God, and would turn away from Him, and they would be reaping the, the consequences and the problems that come with a life of sin and disobedience uh, that God said to them, but look, even there, in those times, if you confess, God said to them, if you acknowledge your iniquity, uh, you recognize your unfaithfulness to me, and, and he says at that point he told them if your hearts are humbled and you accept your guilt God said look I'm longing I'm just waiting to be gracious to you I'm desirous to be forgiving and, and to restore you and God assured them that look even in the midst of your worst failures I'm just looking for you to be awakened even in the midst of the difficulties to acknowledge that you're in the wrong path and that you're off course and that I want to bring you back under my blessing and God says I'm, I'm waiting I love what the prophet says I believe it's um, Micah says at the end of his book where he speaks of God as a God who is ready to pardon I love, I love that description there God is ready to pardon I mean I, I would be thankful if the Bible just said God's willing to pardon that'd be pretty good but the Bible actually says that God is ready to pardon in other words he's waiting he's just saying please all i'm asking just confess just repent just acknowledge accept your guilt and i'm not just willing to pardon i'm ready i'm, I'm waiting i want to pardon i want to forgive i want to be gracious to you and of course god assured them there at the end of that chapter as well 
that despite what would happen, though they'd be driven as they were and dispersed into other lands, God said the thing that would come back to, and this is just because of the God he is, he's a gracious covenant-keeping God, God said to them, even when you're in that place, he says, I will remember my covenant with you and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the land that I promised to you. And God said, and I will not cast you off forever. I'll bring you back to the land. And in some ways, keep in mind, as we said last week, many of these things, even in the 26th chapter, were prophetic of what ultimately would happen with the nation of Israel historically. These things had not happened yet, but God, in his foreknowledge, saw in advance not only their days of obedience, but God even saw their days of failure and disobedience before they ever came to pass. God was already aware of them and God was already speaking to them of how even when they would get, in a sense, temporarily kicked out of the land, how his intention was to bring them back to the land. And numerous times that's happened historically with the nation of Israel. And even ultimately, I think the end of chapter 26 even reminds us that prophetically that once again, the Bible tells us that that is what God will do even in the last days, that one of the marks of the last days will be God regathering his chosen people the nation of Israel back into their homeland because he's given the land to them by covenant and he still has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel that is yet fulfilling now as you come to that it seems like okay well that whole idea of okay however you respond to the commands and statutes of God that that would be a good ending place but then we find one more chapter in the book of Leviticus in chapter 27 many look at it as I said as kind of like a like an appendix or an addendum to the end of book and it talks here about when when people would make vows to God when the Israelites would make vows unto the Lord and how they were to handle and process all that from God's perspective and it almost seems somewhat like, well, what would that have to do with kind of what's being described? And I don't know. There's almost a part of me that maybe wonders, and I can't say that this is absolutely correct, but potentially God deals with vows at the end of this book where he talks much about worship and holiness and how to live a holy life and the sacrificial system and being responsive to all the things that God gave them in their worship life. Because God knows that we have a tendency, even in good intention, that when we want to do what's right and pleasing, and we say, hey, I want God's blessing. I don't want to curse my life. I want to incur and bring God's blessing upon my life. That sometimes in uh, a hyperzealousness, even in good intention, we become so overzealous at times and that we can have a tendency to then make maybe vows and almost unrealistic promises to God that sometimes may really not be necessary or what's best for us. So it's almost as if maybe God tempers that by addressing the issue of vows because perhaps many of the children of Israel, after hearing these things and they've just received this 26-chapter message here about following God, that they would say, that's it, all right. So we're going to vow everything to God and I'm going to give this to God and I'm going to do that to God. And like you and I, you know, we're going to make all these self-resolves and I'm going to do this and charge the mountain and capture the five golden apples for Jesus because I'm so excited now. And and we, before we even get to the first apple, fall out of the apple tree, right? And all of a sudden we realize, I guess, you know, the good intention, but uh, the fulfillment of my great zeal isn't often exactly what I would like it to be. Now, as this chapter deals with vows, let me just say this. There is nowhere that we find in Scripture where God, in essence, commands the children of Israel or you and I, especially as Christians from a new covenant perspective, 
to make vows. We see times when people made vows in the scripture, but we do not see God commanding us to make vows, asking us to make vows. Uh, That is something that many times as human beings we feel compelled to do, again, when we're maybe over-enthusiastic, even in spiritual life and matters, and and then sort of out of hyper-zealousness or hyper-spirituality, it's kind of, well, man, what can I render to the Lord? I have to render something back to the Lord for all His goodness and His grace, and I want to dedicate something to Him. So as a result, many times, people make vows to God. They make spiritual vows, or who hasn't maybe in that crisis moment, whether it was your own life or you know someone else, that we're in that crisis moment, go, God, if you get me out of this... Who hasn't finished that kind of a sentence before? Or Lord, because you've done this to me, therefore I'm going to... And, and in that hyper-zealous, hyper-spiritual way, we make many times vows, which let's be honest, are typically unrealistic promises. And they're unrealistic maybe commitments in what we want to dedicate or vow to God. For example, case in point, Judges chapter 11, Jephthah did that where Jephthah was ready to to go out and and, and Jephthah said, look, Lord, if you give me success and you prosper me in what I'm about to do, then when I come back, the first thing that I see as I descend back on my homeland, the very first thing I see, I will offer to you as a burnt offering and sacrifice. And he makes this rather hasty, unrealistic, overzealous vow to God and if you remember the story what happens the first thing he sees when he returns back is his daughter and now he's made this foolish vow and he's in a perplexing situation where he made this unrealistic vow and now he's kind of stuck what do I do and again here God seems to give some protocol to kind of minimize if you would making rash and hasty vows to God so he gives some instruction to the people in relation to that. Now again, the Bible warns us when you see the issue of vows addressed, the Bible warns us of the seriousness of making vows to God. For example, let me just read to you some corresponding scriptures. Listen to Deuteronomy 23, which basically is a rehearsal of the law when they're about to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 to 23. Let me read it to you. Just listen to it before we go into our chapter. God says to the children of Israel there, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it would be sin to you. In other words, it would be sin to not fulfill it if you've made it. But if you abstain from vowing, then it won't be sin to you. In other words, God says you don't need to vow. You want to avoid another area of sin, just just don't vow. You let your yes be yes, your no be no, and realize you don't have to pay God off or bribe God with your... Just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be realistic. He says you can abstain from sinning in that way. He says that which has gone from your lips... You shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord your God and what you have promised with your mouth. In Numbers chapter 30, again, we read this. This is the thing which the Lord commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So again, we see in the scriptures, God's very serious about when we do make a vow or a commitment, 
that we are required and responsible to keep it in the sight of the Lord. And again, one of the reasons primarily being why? Because we represent God. And the Bible says that God is a God who keeps his promises. In fact, the Bible says that God cannot lie. So when God makes a vow, as he makes many vows and covenants and commitments to us, God keeps them. God never makes a promise or says he's going to do something and doesn't fulfill it. And we represent God. So God says, I take that very seriously. As you're upon the earth, if you make vows and, and, and these type of things, God says, then I expect you to fulfill what you say. So it's a very serious matter. And it seems here we have some protocol given by God to sort of temper among the nation of Israel and maybe minimize the tendency to make rash and hasty vows to God sometimes. So this is really what our, our chapter is addressing. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, notice, and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord. Again, consecrates a vow. Uh, the idea here, what, what God's addressing, some transitions say makes a difficult vow, a singular vow. Again, th this is a voluntary thing. It's not something someone would have to do. This may again be maybe, uh, again, God got the person out of a crisis they were in or they were facing some difficulty. Maybe the, they were having a financial burden because their crops weren't producing and they were facing starvation or they had a debt collector that was putting pressure upon them or maybe there was a you know something that was threatening them militarily or circumstantially or some family problem they say god if you just resolve this if you just get me out of this and and people would be prone to make vows or sometimes maybe god would do something wonderful in their life and in gratitude and response they want to give something back to the lord but they would go over it. lord because you did this therefore I vow I will this and this and I'm going to give you this and, and as if somehow that you know we have to owe God back something and pay him back and so these were tendencies and sometimes we see it would happen where they would vow or dedicate people whether themselves or their family members or their children sometimes they would dedicate their lands or they'd make a vow god my house belongs to you my fields a portion of it i'm going to dedicate to you all the profits from it but the first thing god addresses here is the potential to dedicate maybe a person maybe one of their children or a family member unto the lord and of course uh, we see rare occasions when this was done for example with hannah and samuel remember she made a vow to dedicate Samuel unto the Lord, but she kept that vow. When she weaned him, she actually brought him to the temple and left him there to serve in the temple of the Lord. But many times people would make these kind of vows, but they didn't really want to, again, turn over their child to be raised in the temple or uh, it just wasn't realistic what they were going to do. And sometimes because there was the tribe of Levi and they had enough people to minister, they didn't need you know, Johnny and Eddie and whoever extra running around the temple. So now you have a problem. You vowed and dedicated your child to the Lord. Well, well, what do you do? Uh, how do you compensate for that? Well, here God seems to give a protocol where they could sort of redeem back and pay the price to uh, resolve the vow that they had made in that situation so they didn't actually have to follow through with giving their child in that sense. He says, when a man consecrates a vow by certain persons... According to your valuation, if your valuation is a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
If it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels of silver. And if from five years old to 20 years old, if the person is that age who is dedicated, then the valuation price, if they wanted to redeem them back from the vow, was to be 20 shekels, and for a female was to be 10 shekels at that age bracket. Verse 6, and if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male would be five shekels of silver, and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it's a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But God gave a provision as well. If the person is too poor, then the priest was to be able to have discretion to determine the valuation uh, as he would be presented uh, according to the ability. Notice that term at the end of verse 8, according to the ability of him who vowed, the priest shall value him. So God sets this protocol in place where you could, in a sense, redeem back Again, whether it was your child or yourself, you made an unrealistic vow, and so you've now, oh, God, I'm, I vow my life to you, God. I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to your service, and, and, and it's just unrealistic because you need to keep working the farm to provide for your wife and your seven children. So now you've made a hasty vow. God doesn't just let you off the hook. God says, no, I still require that of you. And so God establishes a way, and notice it was somewhat costly. Uh, if you made a hasty vow, you had to redeem that back in the valuation of the shekel uh, of the sanctuary to pay back. And God sets different valuations for males and females in the different age brackets. Now, let me just say, uh, that has nothing to do with the worth of a person. Uh, it has nothing to do with the worth of a male over a female or a, a person 60 and above compared to a person from 20 to 60. Simply what's being described there is really a determination based upon how much work that person could render. And therefore you realize the, the one between 20 and 60 years old, when a person would have potentially their most you know, physical capabilities to be able to do things rather than a, in a child from a month to five years old or someone at that stage of life, God simply based the valuation upon how much work they could render, what they could contribute. Uh, and that's how the valuations were being determined here. Now verse nine addresses, let's say you vowed to God an animal from your flock or from your herds. He says, if it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, so if it was an acceptable, one of the clean animals that they were able to sacrifice, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy, acceptable, set apart. Verse 10, but he shall not substitute it or exchange it good for bad. <laughs> Interesting God has to tell him this. Or bad for good, and if God says he tries to pull a fast one and exchange animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged, God says, I'm keeping them both. <laughs> then they'll both be holy. If it's an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal to the priest, and the priest shall set the value for it, whether it is good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, God says, so it shall be. So he gave the priest 
the spiritual authority to make that determination, to, uh, to use discretion as God gave them that ability to make these determinations in relation to these things of the worship life of the children of Israel. But again, here God addresses how, let's say you wanted to dedicate your, your uh, cow to the Lord. You wanted to, you know, you know God, I'm going to dedicate this animal uh, to the temple precincts or whatever to be used for an offering or to help sustain the families of the priests or something like that. God says, what I won't tolerate, he says, is that if you vow an animal and then you decide, oh man, that's actually one of our best producing uh, you know, uh, chickens on the farm. So, I mean, maybe, may, what, what did you dedicate Betsy for? Why didn't you ask me, Verth? I would have told you to get rid of Harriet. I mean, she don't ever lay eggs. And, and, and so he said, well, just nobody knows the difference. We know the difference between Betsy and Harriet. So before we get up to the temple, we'll just switch out the good one for the bad one. And God says, no, no, no. If you try and pull that one, God says, I'm, I'm taking both of them. Uh, and, and here again, God just knows our mentality. Perhaps you've heard this story before, and forgive me if, if you have, but the story of the farmer who uh, his... Uh, cow gave birth to twin calves and so he was ecstatic wow we actually you know this is a great asset we actually got two animals instead of one and so he was so excited his wife said what are you going to do oh thanks the lord is so good he actually gave us two new animals here on the farm and instead of one so you know what Honey, I think we should keep one for ourselves and we're going to dedicate the other one to God. I'm just so thankful we're going to dedicate the other one to God. So he you know, took care of them and was raising them both and keeping an eye on them. His wife asked him, well, well which, which one are you dedicating to the Lord? The one with the spots or... Or the, or the one without the spots. Well, I, you know, I don't know, but we're going to dedicate, we're dedicating one to the Lord. One is dedicated to the Lord. And so after a season of time went by, one day he went out to the barn and he came back into the house and his face was long and dreary and his wife knew something tragic happened. And he said, oh my goodness, she said, what happened? And he said, the Lord's cow died. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, isn't that our tendency there this isn't amazing how the Lord's cow died you know what was going to be the Lord that that's what ours is still okay but the Lord's cow has died somehow uh, and, and again, I think this is the idea here. God is exchanging good for bad. And, and God says, no, if you've said you're going to render something, can you really, can we really outgive God? He says, look, if you, if you consecrate something to me, then let it go. Let it be mine, and, and, and here God just cautions. Again, he just knows our human tendency. I almost find it humorous that God is so honest and just recognizes what we're like in our humanity. Verse 13, he now addresses, again, this idea here, if you want to redeem it back. And this is what we're talking about with these different valuations in the chapter. Look at verse 13. But if he wants at all to redeem it, and the word redeem means to buy back. So let's say you said, you know what, hey, I did vow that to the Lord, I dedicated it, but that was a hasty decision, I, you know, I, and, and I, I, we really need that for survival, then God gave them a provision. He was gracious. He gave them a provision, but notice there was a 20% upcharge. So uh, it's not a good idea to give to God and then take back from God. So God says, if you want to redeem it back... Again, God wasn't a hard nose, whether it was a family member or whether it was an animal, they could redeem it back, but God says they were to add 20% to the valuation of what it was worth, and then you could bring the animal back home. He made that provision for them. Verse 14, he says, and if a man dedicates his house, 
to be holy to the Lord. So again, I just you know want to dedicate my whole house to God for His purposes and give it over to the Lord. Then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it's good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. So that put a lot of realtors out of the business there. The priest was the one determining the house property values. If he who dedicated it once notice to redeem his house, so you, you dedicated your house and you come home and because your wife's not real, thr- real thrilled about the fact that you just dedicated your house to the local priest and, well, all right, honey, I'm, I'm going to resolve this. I just had a really uh, spiritual moment during the prayer meeting. I, I'm going to resolve this. Uh, then you could go up, but again, notice uh, you had to add one-fifth of the money of what the valuation of the house was to be able to redeem it back and get yourself out from under the requirement of the vow. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, the idea is, you know, maybe one quadrant of your farm or your harvest that comes in, you're going to, okay, this percentage or this particular portion of the land over here whatever it yields we're going to just give that to God and and again you make that decision but decide mm, you know maybe we you know shouldn't have done that then your valuation God says shall be according to the seed for it a homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver and if he dedicates his field from the year of jubilee remember we talked about that when all the debts and the land would be released and go back to their original owners every 50 years this would happen then according to your evaluation it shall stand so the idea here we're looking at is they would determine the valuation of the field in relation to the year of jubilee in the same way if they would buy and sell lands among themselves But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, verse 18, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be then deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in the jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be a possession uh, of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not in the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up until the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on the day as a holy offering to the Lord. And in the year of Jubilee, that field shall then return to him, to whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession, and all your valuations, verse 25, God says, shall be according, notice, to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 jeras to a shekel. Now, I'm not exactly certain, commentators don't give, it seems, a consistent explanation of exactly what those evaluations would equate to in our um, uh, you know, modern uh, economic value. But nonetheless, what they all do agree is, is these were pretty hefty fees. So as you would realize, wow, you know, that would be pretty costly to make a vow and then have realized it was rash and have to retract it, uh, God was purposely doing this, again, as I said, because what's he doing? He's trying to indicate, look, you don't have to make vows. I'm not requiring vows. No, I'm not, I never command you to make vows. God is the one who makes vows. God is the one who makes promises and covenants to us. 
But God's saying to them, look, I want to minimize the tendency of this. And so he makes it somewhat costly to try and help people to be a little more conscientious of just shooting from the hip and making these rash and hasty vows to God, which many times they could never keep or they would never ultimately be in a right heart to want to keep even after they made it. Now, verse 26, going towards the end of the chapter now, God addresses, in a sense, forbidden vows. Look, these are things that you cannot vow. It's just not even something that you're allowed to vow, even if you chose to make a voluntary vow. He addresses that now, beginning in verse 26. He says, but the firstborn of the animals... And look at the language, verse 26, which should be the Lord's firstborn. They've known this all the way back from the book of Exodus. The firstborn of any animal was always to be given to the Lord as a form of faith and appreciation and recognition that God, you are our provider and our source. Now, again, God made a provision where they could redeem it back if they did want to keep it. But the firstborn, God claimed it as his own, period. It wasn't an issue of, do you want to give it to God? God declared, it's mine. God just took, in a sense, the prerogative as the provider and creator and giver of all things. That's why he says here, the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate whether ox or sheep. Notice what he says, because it is the Lord's. That's distracting, so let's pray anyway. Father, we just want to pray for... Uh, Lord, the response to even what we hear outside now. And Lord, we pray for the medical personnel, Lord, for any law enforcement officers, for any uh, firemen, uh, women, those who may be responding. And we pray, Lord, that you would just supernaturally enable them uh, to serve and to care for and to address whatever tragic or difficult thing they may be arriving to. And we pray for anyone involved that you would just be merciful and intervene. Lord, we pray for your hand at work and we intercede and pray you would spare life and, and just be gracious and helpful in this hour of trial. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So again, verse 26 here, he's addressing, again, what could be a propensity with people. He says, look, the firstborn, which already should be the Lord's, you can't dedicate it because he says, why? It's the Lord's already. In other words, he's saying, look, you can't give to God as a vow or, or a gift something that already belongs to God. That's not really a gift. Uh, that would be somewhat like, uh, you know, for example, uh, somebody this evening uh, going and, and taking your car for a spin maybe and then uh, while you're still here fellowship and they snag your keys and they go drive your car around back for a while and then you come back and as you're heading back, I say, hey, you know what, I just... I want to give this vehicle to you. Give this vehicle to me. That's my vehicle. What do you mean you're giving me the vehicle? That's my vehicle. It was it was my vehicle to start with. You can't give it to me. How can you give me what already belongs to me? And this is the idea here. Is God says, look, if you want to give a vow or dedicate or something, God says, you can't give to me something that already belongs to me. You can't manipulate this. Oh, Lord, I'm going to give this to you. And God says, what do you mean give it to me? It's already mine. How can you give me what already belongs to me? But again, God knows our humanity and the way that we at times 
want to try and negotiate a deal with God or manipulate the system somehow. And he says, look, it's already the Lord's. It belongs to him. So you can't vow it or dedicate something like that to him. Verse 27, and if it's an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add one fifth to it. Or if it's not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Verse 28, another prohibition. Nevertheless, he says, no devoted offering. Again, the idea here is something that's devoted already to God. It's already been devoted in some way to God. If it's already been devoted to God, uh, then you can't notice no one may devote that to the Lord. Uh, Of all that he has, both man and beast, or of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. And, And again, the idea here is something is already dedicated to God, devoted over to God. God's already claimed it as his own then God says, you can't devote something that, that's already belonging to me. And again, if you read, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Saul becomes guilty of this. When they were going in to attack the people of the Amalekites, God gave Saul very clear direction that because of what the Amalekites had done to the children of Israel and because their iniquity had reached its full and God was about to judge them nationally, God said, look, everything... Man, woman, beast, animal, everything, everything, it's devoted over to me and don't spare any of it. And in a sense, God pre-devoted it as unto his purposes. And what does Saul do? He goes through and he ends up killing some of you, but he spares King Agag. And then it says he saves what? The best, imagine that. Well, I mean, we're going to keep, yeah, I mean, all the weak and sick sheep and the, you know, three-legged things and the you know, ones that got scurvy, you just get rid of all them. We don't, we don't need them, but let's keep all the good ones. And what's Saul's justification when you say, his justification is that, is that he's pretty spiritual. Save all the good ones. And when Samuel comes and he reproves him and he says, hey, I've fulfilled the word of the Lord. And he says, well, if you fulfilled the word of the Lord, what's this bleeding of sheep? that I hear in my ears, why are there animals still alive? And he says, oh, well, well, these, we save these to dedicate to God, to give to God and worship. Oh, don't you sound spiritual? And remember, that's when Samuel addresses him and says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't need your sacrifice. And your sacrifice in him, what already belongs to him? I mean, how shallow is that, Saul? Looks pretty spiritual, doesn't it? I bet you look really spiritual among the people. Hey, we're, and, and, and we love to present ourselves as spiritual. And he says, look, to obey. You should have obeyed the Lord's voice. Again, God cares more about our obedience than he does our gifts and offerings and the things that we think we can render to him. Because truth be told, let me be very honest, it is much more costly to obey God than it is to throw God a few bucks. Look, there are lots of people who would would gladly throw $1,000 into a charity instead of have to obey God. And if they have the capability, it's it's much easier for them. It's less costly to write $10,000 to a charity. $10,000. That's less costly than to deny themselves or humble themselves and be obedient to God. Obedience is extremely costly because we are selfish, self-governed, self-sufficient, greedy, narcissistic. Is that enough definitions? People. So it's very costly to obey God and just to do what God says because sometimes that requires faith. And I say, God, I don't know if I understand what you're telling me to do there. 
Lord, that's, that's a little out of my element, what you're asking me. That doesn't line up with reason. And God, that seems like a waste. I mean, just destroy everything. I mean, why wouldn't we save the good animals? God, maybe your, maybe your perspective's off a little bit. I mean, you, you know, that's not the way military campaigns are run. We want to take some spoils. We can build up your treasury, God. Don't you need more money in your treasury? And see, sometimes it's more costly to live by faith and set aside reason and just obey God humbly than it is to just try and buy God off or make some sacrifice. And, and, and here God is addressing that very kind of a thing. In fact, verse 29, he addresses times again, like the book of uh, Joshua with Jericho, when that city was under the ban. The idea is that everyone there was to be put to death. He says, verse 29, no person under the ban. The idea there is, is a death sentence. Could be who was doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but they were to surely be put to death. So if capital punishment was determined because of God's uh, reasoning, they could not redeem such a person and negotiate somehow. Uh, God said that that was unacceptable. Verse 30, he says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, again, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So again, one-tenth of their seed, of their land, of their fruit, one-tenth, the first-tenth of it, God says, it, it belongs to me. That was a statute God gave to the nation of Israel. That tithe was used to uh, help the operation of the temple precincts and to supply for the Levites and the priests and the ministers and the worship system among the nation of Israel was also used to help minister to the poor and address certain needs. So this was a statute that God set for the children of Israel. The, the, the first tenth, God says, it is the Lord's. It's holy. It's set apart to the Lord. Verse 31, if a man wants to redeem any of his tithes. So you know what, Lord? I, need, I want to borrow from my tithes a little. <laughs> I want to redeem them back. It wasn't a good idea. Look, God, God charges 20% interest. It, he says, that, look, if you want to do that, that's fine. But then you have to redeem it with one-fifth interest. And concerning the tithe, God told the children of Israel, of the herd or the flock or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire, the idea here is examine or search out, whether again, notice the animal is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it, substitute it or switch it out. He says, both it, if so, and the one that you swapped it out for shall then be holy and it shall be redeemed. And these, verse 34, are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So, uh, again, God addresses here in relation to that which was considered a tithe and belonged to the Lord according to the statutes God gave to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and what's addressed here in verse 32 and 33 he says, the tithe of their herd or flock, notice he dresses whatever passes under the rod. He says, one-tenth, the idea is the tenth one, shall be holy or set apart to the Lord. Now, typically what was done is the way they would do this is with their herds, as there would be a narrow gate leading into where they would be kept, someone would stand there, and as your animals would pass through a, a narrow opening, one at a time, you would count them, and someone would be there with a rod that typically had a yellowish, orangish, um, sort of dye-type substance on it, and they would basically count. They'd watch, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and the tenth one, as it passed under the rod, they would dab its back, 
to mark it, hey, that's the tenth one. That's ten out of one out of every ten belongs to us. So they would mark the tenth one. What God's addressing here again, as we chuckled about earlier, is how here's what's going on. You're watching your sheep pass through. From you got your hundred sheep, and they're going through one, two, three, and you're going, oh, stink. That really good fluffy one is the, I mean, the one with scurvy is number nine. And the good one is number 10. That's going to really bring us a good profit at the market. And, and you're seeing and you're realizing, oh, man. And, and, and so you nudge one of your herdsmen to say, hey, 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 do me a favor. You see number 9 and 10? <laughs> Swamp them out, would you? Give God the one with scurvy. Nobody will ever know. You know and and, and he, this is what God's addressing here. He says, look, as they're passing under the rod, you're not to, verse 33, search out whether it's good or bad and then exchange it or substitute it and say, hey, I need what's good. Just give God the leftovers. And God says, if you do that, then fine, I'll just take both of them then. And again, we do this kind of stuff humanly, don't we? Where instead of just trusting God and just rendering to the Lord what belongs to the Lord, we want to try and escape our responsibilities before God. Or, or we want to somehow try and negotiate a deal with God or we're going to manipulate or rob God somehow. That never works, man. It never works. Now let me just say in relation to the whole issue of tithing here, again, my personal conviction I don't believe from a New Testament perspective that God mandates tithing upon the church, upon Christians from a New Testament perspective. I see the New Testament principle of giving. Giving proportionally. In the New Testament, I see God saying, let a man on the first week set aside as he may prosper that we are to give systematically, yes, we are to give proportionately, yes, but because we are not under the law in every sphere and capacity, I don't see in the way it was in Israel, understand, yes, it was mandated. They were to give under that system of worship and that covenant with God. They were to give a tenth. It was a tithe. It was required. God said, it's mine. It was the way they operated. Now, do we look to these things as principles? Oh, but wait a minute, tithing predates the law. You're right, I, I understand that too. We see Abraham tithing, we see Jacob tithing, so I understand it predates the law. The principle of spontaneous giving proportionally, originally, yes, that, that it was something that seemed to be a customary way that they gave in the culture, to, and so we see that there. Personally, I, you know, I, I think that it's a good reference point. But I don't think it is mandated and required upon people because, see, again, love and grace causes a person to do much more than law and mandates and constraints will. And then you don't give grudgingly out of necessity. You give as an act of worship and out of faith. I see from a New Testament perspective God saying, look, you're under a covenant of grace, and so as you're under a covenant of grace, that grace that has affected your heart, God says, I can make all grace abound to you. So you pray about and you sincerely search the scriptures and the principles that have been laid out in God's word and look proportionally to how God has blessed you and what you're capable to do. And you determine yourself or with your spouse or whatever, how you want to systematically and proportionately, and the New Testament also says generously, 
Give as an act of worship unto the Lord, understanding that as we give to God, it serves the same purposes. It helps advance the work of his kingdom. It's an act of worship unto the Lord. As we give unto God, we acknowledge his provision. We recognize that, Lord, we don't want to be selfish. You know, Take some of it from me so I'm not the greedy person that I'll typically be. And Lord, I want to participate in your work. I want to help support the work of your kingdom. And I realize that, that this is something that it does take in order to substantiate the work of God and it's something we get to participate in in the process but again this whole thing being addressed here where God knows our hearts and and just from a principle perspective I, I think that as we look at these things we have to realize you know we have the same tendencies and again God's not looking for us to make rash hasty vows God's looking for us to be prayerful to be purposeful to, to consider what we do and what we don't do and in humility to walk before God in that way, even in the way that we respond to him in worship and sacrifice and obedience. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give. Interesting, look at it, it says, the sacrifice of fools. Interesting. God says, when you go to the house of God, don't give a sacrifice of a fool, a foolish sacrifice. Interesting. He says, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart under anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream, God says, comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. And when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay, God says. Proverbs 20 verse 25 says, It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward reconsider his vows. Hey, is it good to dedicate our lives to the Lord, to, you know, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12? Yes. But again, what God desires is that we also be people representing him of integrity, of reliability. So that translates to this for me and you. Even in our worship and our, our, our involvement in the things of God and the church and the you know, kingdom work, if I make a commitment to do something, then I should follow through with it. If, if I say, Lord, I, you know, I, I'm going to commit to serve in this way, then I should be faithful and follow through with it. As an act of faith and obedience to the Lord, we should be people who keep our word and honor our promises because that's part of walking in the holiness of a God who keeps his word and honors his promises.